getting the paper. Thank you. And I hope some of you will be able to see the PowerPoint. We'll do our best. Um, there, there's, I'm going to show some images on the PowerPoint, but it's, it's, it's pictures, not text. I'm going to actually stand to do this so I can put the pictures over. Um, and I'll try and uh, try and make sure we don't rely on the pictures for those who can't quite see them. Um, it's been a very monumental day for things Somali and things East African. If you've been following your news since this morning, how could you have missed it? Uh, the wonderful David Cameron has been on every possible media outlet telling us how important it is to solve Somalia's problems, to bring an end to this failed state, to secure Britain's interests and to make the world a safer place, etc, etc, etc. Now, Somalia, of course, has been a failed state since 1991, so I wonder why it's suddenly become so important. After 20 years of state failure, why now? It's a question of timing. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that, and I'm going to try and explain why suddenly, after 20 years of not wanting to solve this problem, it seems the West has decided that they do, after all, want to solve this problem. And I might say at the end a little bit about how the West is proposing to do that and what I think of the schemes that have been foregrounded. I was going to say announced today, but actually it's quite difficult for the announcements to work out what they're actually going to do, isn't it? No one's actually saying that. And I think there are reasons why they're not saying it. And I'll try and be explicit about what those reasons are at the end. But to begin with, I'm going to try and explain why we've got to this point. And to do that, I'm going to focus around the events since the invasion of Somalia on the 16th of October last year by the Kenyan army. A monumental event in its own right. The first time the Kenyan army had gone to war across its borders. I hope the last, but maybe not. And for the Kenyan army, certainly a very significant moment. Now that moment came in the midst of the worst regional famine this region has seen for 30 years. Now you might think it's a rather odd time to invade a neighboring country in the midst of a famine. But the famine itself has been extremely contingent to what has gone on. At the time of the invasion, the Kenyan government and the Kenyan army, although sending out somewhat mixed messages about what they were doing, conveyed the sense that the reason for the invasion was that Kenya's tourist industry was being tarnished and challenged by the taking of hostages and uh, uh, among the tourist community. In the six weeks prior to the invasion of 16th October, there had been three separate incidents of kidnapping. The first was a British tourist and her husband uh, the woman was taken captive and the husband was murdered. The second was a French tourist who, well, actually not a tourist, a resident of Lamu, who was taken from her home and then uh, regrettably died in captivity a few weeks later, having been unable to secure her regular medication. And then the third incident involving involved the seizure of two Spanish health workers working for MSF in the Dadaab uh, refugee camps and I'll explain a little bit more about those in a moment. All of the press announcements made by the Kenyan army and by the Kenyan government at this time accused Al-Shabaab 
of having been involved in those kidnappings. There is not one scintilla of evidence that Al-Shabaab was involved in those kidnappings. And indeed, in the hours after the first kidnapping, Al-Shabaab went to extraordinary lengths in Kismayu to issue press releases and make statements denying any involvement whatsoever in kidnapping. All of the people who studied Al-Shabaab for the last decade or so, Roland Marshall, Lesage, all of these people will all confirm to you Al-Shabaab has very purposefully <coughs> kept its distance from kidnapping. Partly for religious grounds, partly for ideological grounds, but politically it feels it doesn't want to be tarnished by being involved with piracy, with kidnapping and with ransoming. Now there's always been the possibility that third parties could take hostages and pass them on to Al-Shabaab. And in the current context, that possibility still exists. In a situation of war, Al-Shabaab may see that having a few hostages as human shields becomes a useful tactic. But in the lead up to this conflict, Al-Shabaab did not take those hostages and was not involved in hostage taking. Rather, that was a convenient excuse. Now, the Kenyan government put this forward, I don't think necessarily because they were looking for an excuse, but they were well aware that this was a useful device in order to popularize and justify the invasion. Now, when the invasion began on the 16th of October, um, it's, debated, it's been debated in Kenya as to whether there in fact was any, parliament, any parliamentary or cabinet level discussion of the decision to invade. In other words, it's not clear who took that decision. There were certainly members of the Kenyan cabinet who have claimed not to know it was going to happen and who claimed that they weren't consulted. Now, that shouldn't surprise us because Kenya's current coalition government uh, is not a government that, that accepts responsibility for its actions. In other words, the government is divided into, into factions. Those factions don't necessarily talk to each other. And it's easy to imagine how one particular group may have felt they couldn't trust another group to keep quiet about the plans for this. And that is what I think happened. So there's no collective responsibility in the Kenyan government for the invasion itself. However, the invasion has been enormously populist in Kenya. I don't know if anybody's had the time to look at Kenyan newspapers. I'm so boring, I do that almost every day. And the Kenyan press is full of wonderful jingoistic headlines and daring do stories of what our boys are getting up to in southern Somalia. This is a highly populist invasion. Kenyans generally see Somalia and Somalis as a problem. And they're all too happy to solve that problem in an armed, physical way. And the newspapers have portrayed this, as I say, in a very jingoistic manner. So the politicians are not going to say they don't support the, the invasion. And although many Kenyans express private reservations about this act and what it might mean and where it might lead us, it's quite difficult publicly to have a discourse about this that is negative. And one can understand why. So, <clears throat> the invasion takes place 16th of October in the midst of a famine. Now that famine had been caused over a long running period by drought. 
18 months prior to October, international aid agencies had issued warnings about famine in this area, predicting almost exactly as it turned out, how many people would be vulnerable to food shortages and when this would kick in. In other words, this was a disaster that we saw coming. The international community, through those aid agencies and Oxfam and Save the Children, who were the most prominent, tried to raise public awareness and to raise funds. International governments were rather slower to act. And we may want to ask why. Particularly governments in this region, Ethiopia and Kenya, showed no huge enthusiasm for dealing with the famine problem in southern Somalia. So the campaign to fight the famine had great difficulty gaining traction. And some of you may have seen that on around just at the end of September, Ken Menkhouse, who I think is the most respectable and respected writer on these matters, wrote a, a very interesting piece about this, about this inability to get people to act on this famine, uh, urging the international community to, to step up to the mark. Now I would put it to you, I think that the famine was being ignored because other things were going on and other issues were more important in this area than dealing directly with the famine. And I'll come back to that as well as we move on. The real problem in this area for a long time has been refugees and the famine was simply adding to an already mounting refugee problem. Now those at the back won't be able to see the figures on this but if I can just put we have an upward curve here of numbers of people in the refugee camps on the Kenyan-Somali border. Along the bottom scale we have the years and what it shows is there have been 140,000 refugees in those camps since 2004. In other words, already seven years ago, eight years ago, the refugee crisis on this border was one of the largest in the world. What has happened since 2004 is that the numbers in these camps have climbed and climbed and climbed. Until in the summer of 2010, two years ago now, the figure reached almost 300,000 refugees in the Dadaab camps alone, which are the camps on the Kenyan-Somali border. So there's been, I mean, I think these figures are quite evident. So there's been a chronic crisis in this area of people leaving southern Somalia and coming across the border into Kenya for several years past. The bottom table here shows the numbers of refugees coming in in each year. In 2007, it was 18,000 new refugees. But in 2008, it was 62,000. In 2009, it was 72,000. And in 2010, up to November, it was 65,000 in individual years. Now, that's as big in individual years as some refugee problems are overall in other parts of the world. So this is an enormous problem, simply huge. And it's been steadily getting much, much worse. Those refugees are Somalis. There are Somali refugee populations all over Eastern Africa. It's a regional problem. This map shows the populations, the official refugee populations in, in parts of the region. And these bubbles show the actual size of the acknowledged refugee population. In Kenya, 520,000, that's over half a million. In Yemen, nearly 200,000. In Ethiopia, officially 181,000, it's probably three times that. 
in Uganda 20,000 and so on. So we have a major problem of refugees. Now those figures do not count the actual Somali resident populations in those countries. So aside from the 500,000 refugees in Kenya, Kenya has a total Somali population of 2.4 million. Now around one and a half million of those are Kenyan citizens. Ethiopia has a Somali population of over 4 million living in the Ogaden region who are Ethiopian citizens. So the Somali diaspora problem links to the refugee problem in quite complicated ways. And for this region, the two together represent a political problem. Now that political problem, I think, really came into focus in the summer of 2010, when Al-Shabaab managed to bomb two restaurants in Kampala. That is the beginning of the events that get us to what's happened today. Because the one leader in this area you don't want to rattle his cage is Museveni. He got very angry about Al-Shabaab's attack. And what he did was essentially to change the running orders for the Amazon troops who were by then in Mogadishu. Amazon is the United Nations supported African Union peacekeeping force that's been in Mogadishu for the last two and a half years, <coughs> peacekeeping in order to allow the TFG, the transitional federal government of Somalia, to carry out its work. Up until the summer of 2010, uh, that force was made up predominantly of Ugandan and Burundian soldiers. And they were pretty much hunkered down around the main central area in uh, Mogadishu and the airport, and keeping open a channel between the two so that people could go back and forth from the central area to the airport. They were being mortared almost every day by Al-Shabaab and their supporters, and every so often the road to the airport would get cut off. It was a very fragile situation. Now, their terms of engagement as a peacekeeping force is under the normal UN-style mandates that restricts their activities to non-aggressive, passive defense. They are not allowed by their mandate to fire on enemy forces unless they have been attacked. So there are very strict rules of engagement. That Amazon force is paid for by Western donors, totally. It's an AU initiative, but it's paid for by Western donors. Now what Museveni essentially did after the bombing of Kampala was to go on a full frontal assault against Al-Shabaab and their Somali supporters. His commanders in Mogadishu were consulted and over the coming months they shifted from that passive peacekeeping role to what is in essence a counterinsurgency role. This totally overrides their mandate but no one seems to have commented on this at all. They planned and launched in June this year, in June 2011, a full frontal assault on Al-Shabaab in Mogadishu. And that assault resulted in, by August this year, the Al-Shabaab forces in Mogadishu being pushed back out of the city for the first time in several years and pushed into the countryside around Mogadishu. That was the first phase of the operation we see being continued today. Part of that operation by Museveni also involved inviting the Eritrean leader, Isaias, to Kampala for discussions. 
what they discussed, we can only speculate, but let me try. It was revealed in June 2011 in a UN report that Eritrea was supplying arms to Al-Shabaab and that those arms were being flown from Asmara to airstrips in southern Somalia. Now, it's debated how reliable this evidence is. It, it, it's not 100% clear that one should rely upon it. But it had been rumoured for some time that Eritrea was in fact allowing Al-Shabaab to be supplied, whether it was the Eritrean government that was doing it directly or not is a moot point. But certainly supplies were coming from Eritrea into the Al-Shabaab areas through the port of Kizimeo and through flights. It was also rumoured that this was being paid for with Libyan dollars, in that Gaddafi was rumoured to be giving Isaiasin the money to carry this out. Now, we can't prove this, we can't disprove it. It's an accusation that's been documented, has been widely reported, we can't be certain. But it's, it fits a series of scenarios that we know quite a bit about. The Eritreans need no encouragement to do anything that will annoy the Ethiopians. And in southern Somalia, that's a distant enough field to make that work quite well. My understanding from talking to Ugandan journalists is that this is what Museveni and Isaias discussed, and that Museveni was attempting to persuade Isaias to, to stop supporting al-Shabaab in preparation for a push against them. Now, of course, since then, in, in October last year, just as the Kenyan offensive started, so did the raids. And the raids, in fact, wiped out most of the airfields in this area and anyway made it very difficult for anyone to give air support to Al-Shabaab. So perhaps the fact that no flights have gone on in the last few months is just a coincidence, but the support for Al-Shabaab from Eritrea does appear to have stopped. The next thing that happens after the summer of 2010 and the bombings and then the orders for the Ugandan troops in 2011 to go on the offensive is we get the Kenyan invasion in October 2011. The Kenyans have reasons to invade. I'm going to skip that one. That's a picture of the Dadaab refugee camp. It's Jake McKnight here tonight because Jake put these slides together for me. My glamorous assistant is here. Thank you very much. Uh, this is an aerial photograph taken a couple of years ago of Dadaab. It's grown in size since then by about 25%. It's one of East Africa's largest urban conurbations. The graph I showed you earlier on showed a population of Dadaab of 299,000 people in November 2010. The population as of last week was just touching on 500,000. It's the largest refugee settlement on the planet. Vast. Logistics here are a nightmare. There is no power, there is no proper sanitation. Just think the problems of food supply to this area. It's a remote borderland of northeastern Kenya. This is a servicing nightmare. It's been there for more than 17 years. This camp began as a UNHCR camp designed to house 30,000 people. The Kenyans have persistently year after year, campaigned with the UNHCR to have this camp closed. 
or to have it moved to the other side of the border or to do something about it. But it has just incrementally got bigger and bigger and bigger. It now houses, let's say, 500,000 people, 97% of whom are Somali or Somali speaking. In the last two years, the security authorities in Kenya have become increasingly worried about these ca this camp. There are confirmed reports that weapons are stashed in the camp, explosives have been found in the camp. There is fairly firm evidence that Al-Shabaab has been recruiting in the camp. And why wouldn't they? Because if you're looking for disaffected youth, my goodness, this is where you're going to find it. There are many people aged 18, 19, 20 who were born in this camp and have never lived anywhere else, who are restricted from moving out of it by the fact they don't have the right paperwork to go into Kenya or even back to Somalia. So no wonder this becomes a breeding ground for all kinds of dissidents and militancy. So the camps have increasingly come under the focus of the security authorities. And on two or three occasions since 2009, the Kenyan army have gone into the camps after people searching for ammunition and weapons and so on. And there was one notorious occasion two years ago where they, they cleared out the hospital, which they believe was being used to stash ammunition. So the camp has become a real, a real focal point of security concern. Now, if that problem had been dealt with five, ten years ago as it should have been, we wouldn't be where we are now. And the Kenyans are quite right to have complained about this. The international community should have solved this problem. Now, there are lots of reasons why they didn't. There's lots of incremental reasons why these camps are still there. But our failure to address this problem, which has been growing steadily bigger incrementally year by year, is at the root of the current issue. These are pictures from the Dab. Um, normally, it's a, it's a very dry area, semi-arid area. But of course, when it rains, um, the soils in this area compact very easily and you get massive sheet flooding. Now, the day after the Kenyans invaded, we believe the rains broke. First time in two and a half years, and we began to get major flooding. That's a picture taken in the camp during the flood. The whole place ends up covered in water. And there is the airfield up in Hudur, near, near the hospital. And that's one of the airfields that the aerotrains are supposed to be landing weapons and support at completely flooded out when the rains come. Again, that's another shot of the airfield at her door. Looks like a sea, doesn't it? Not an airfield. Okay, so the refugee crisis is, I'm, I'm suggesting, a, a, a precipitant. The Dab camps are here, in the Somali border. The Kenyan army entered in three different waves. The main battalion headed in in the center across to the border post of Dobley and Laboy, heading towards the town of Afmado. Afmado is on the Juba River and is a major crossing point. Most of the analysts mistakenly thought that the Kenyans were going to take Afmado and then head for Kismayu. In fact, the Kenyan army um, made statements that I think led people to believe that. Um, the Kenyans also made statements that it would all be over within a week or two. They expected to be cruising into Kismayu very quickly. Uh, they're still around Afmadu four months later because this is proving a much harder fight than they thought it would be. What they are in fact trying to do I think is not go to Kismayo at all but go to Afmadu and then on to Jalib. 
And the reason we're heading for Jalib is that Jalib is the next crossing point on the other big river, which is the Shibeli, which comes up here. And the Shibeli is also on the road to Mogadishu. So if you take Afmadu and if you take Jalib, you've effectively cut Kismay off. You've closed off both river crossings and you've closed off the main road to Mogadishu. So the Kenyans managed to go straight across here and get to Jalib. They will contain Al-Shabaab in this southern area. And that's the, that's the point, to try and stop them breaking out. Unfortunately, the Kenyans have taken so damn long to get to where they've got to, that a lot of the Al-Shabaab forces have already got out to the north. And that explains the next phase that happens. Late November, the Ethiopian army entered from Dolo. There are now two Ethiopian battalions in central Somalia, mostly in the Bakul, Garbahay and Bay areas. Those of you who watch your news attentively will have seen that 36 hours ago they took the town of Baidoa. And Baidoa was a major Al-Shabaab stronghold in the center of Bay, of the Bay province, to the northeast of to the northwest of, of, of Mogadishu. So we have what in effect is a second Ethiopian invasion of Somalia, following on the events of a few years ago. Now the Ethiopians for several weeks denied they were in, they were in Somalia, didn't make any statements about it, kept quiet, but they've now started making press releases that they are there in assistance of the African forces that are seeking to defeat Al-Shabaab. So this time they're not portraying their involvement in Somalia as an Ethiopian initiative, they're portraying it as part of an African initiative to deal with Al-Shabaab. The Kenyans had two other wings of attack. One was through El Wak to the north, which is going to the town of Badhir, and the other one was up through Ras Kombone in the south. On all three fronts, they've made relatively slow progress. Now, part of the Kenyan tactic here is that in 2000, towards the end of 2009, the Kenyans, with American support, recruited 2,600 Kenyan Somalis, that's Kenyan citizens of Somali origin, into their military, and they formed a separate battalion. That battalion has been under training mainly with American forces, but also, I understand, some British involvement. Um, it's been on training at Isiolo and in Manyani. The idea was to deploy this uh, battalion in smaller units with so-called third forces in southern Somalia. In other words, to identify uh, militia leaders in this Jubaland area who could lead these men in and disrupt the activities of Al-Shabaab. Those familiar with American foreign policy will know this is largely what happened in Central America all those years ago. Very similar tactics. Arm members of your enemy and set them against each other. Doesn't always work, but it's, it's a pretty effective tactic in some respects. So since the middle of last year, we've had two third forces operating in Juba. One in the middle Juba area, and one in the south. And those are both led by local Somalis who are opposed to Al-Shabaab. Now this tactic has really been something that the Western allies of Kenya have supported because they feel that by doing this you will gradually peel away other militias from Al-Shabaab and you will weaken its central authority. 
Al-Shabaab is in fact a highly diffuse and disparate organization made up of several different militia groups who are loosely affiliated to one another. So the core activists within Al-Shabaab do not necessarily have strong firm control over all the fighting units within the organization. It's reckoned at most that Al-Shabaab can put around 5,000 men in the field. It may now be a little more because I think these invasions have allowed Al-Shabaab to present themselves as defending Somalia against foreign invasion yet again and that may well have rallied more recruits to their cause. But they're a relatively small fighting unit. Given that the Amazon, just to get that into scale, Amazon currently has 9,000 troops in Kenya, in, in Somalia, and with the increases announced this morning by Mr. Cameron and his colleagues, that's going to go up to 17,000 in the next few weeks. So we're putting in a force of 17,000 to fight a rebel movement of around 5,000. Interesting figures, aren't they? So, um, the third forces that have gone into Jubaland are being used to disrupt local Al-Shabaab support. But they're also part of a, a wider policy. Since 2007, the Ethiopians have been adopting the same tactic up here in Bakul and in Gedo, where they've been funding and supporting local militias who are battling against Al-Shabaab. Now some of those militias are, in terms of their Islamic ideology, not so very different from Al-Shabaab. But the crucial point is that they're not Al-Shabaab. So the Ethiopians have been, you know, funding them as best they can. Now what this tactic is leading to is the formation of different political claims in this area. So the guys who head up the two forces that the Kenyans are funding have got political ambitions. They want to create new puntlands and new Somalilands in the south. And the Ethiopians are doing the same to nurture and cultivate some of the ambitions of those politicians in Bakul and Bay. And what this is building towards is the formation of a number of Somalias, smaller Somalias, that are each going to have claims to some kind of sovereignty. Now for the Ethiopians and Kenyans, this is a good tactic. You can understand why they're doing it. Firstly, it secures their borders because it puts a barrier between them and the bad guys. It also gives them clients, puppets if you like to be pejorative, who they can deploy to their own ends. So for Ethiopia and Kenya, if the outcome of this is that you end up with new puntlands in Bakul and in Jubaland that Ethiopia and Kenya respectively have some influence over, hey, well that's not a bad result, is it? And it will certainly keep this problem off our doorstep. And the problem continues to be on their doorstep because even in the month after Kenya's invasion began in October, November 2011 saw the largest number of refugees ever come to the Dadaab camp. So the conflict itself generated more refugees to move than had the drought and famine. And conflict is still doing that. Refugees are no longer going across the Kenyan border because the Kenyan army are pushing them back. They're instead flooding over the Ethiopian border. 
and they're filling up their, their refugee camps up here in Ethiopia that are now filling up very rapidly with larger numbers of, 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 of fleeing citizens. So, the politicians. This picture shows the Kenyan foreign minister with some of his counterparts from the TFG in Mogadishu. They made a joint announcement three days after the invasion had begun, three days after be it noted, because it seems that the TFG, or at least the, the larger part of the TFG, were not told the invasion was coming. Now, once again, you've got to think what that means. But what it means is that the Kenyan government didn't trust the Somali government to keep quiet about the plans. So only one or two members of the TFG were trusted enough to be informed. So in the days following the invasion, some of you may have noticed there were a series of very contradictory statements made by various politicians in the region trying to explain what was going on. Partly because some had been told and some had not. Now that fisperous nature of Somalia's politics is part of the story here. Because the Kenyans and the Ethiopians have their own allies, but they're not necessarily allies that each other wants. So for example, among the allies that the Kenyans have are a number of Somali clans whom the Ethiopians describe as Ogadenis. In other words, being rooted in the Ogaden region. Those clans are very prominent in Kenya because in the migrations of Somalis in the late 19th century, early 20th century, those same clan groups came into northern Kenya. But the Ethiopians don't trust those people at all because they associate them with the resistance movements, armed resistance movements, now rising against the Ethiopian government in the Ogaden. So there's no way that Ethiopia wants Kenya supporting Ogadeni Somalis in Kismayo. So they oppose that. Similarly, Kenya doesn't like the guys the Ethiopians are working with in Bakul. So although Kenya and Ethiopia appear to have a similar strategy, they don't necessarily share a perspective on how that should be carried out. So on the one hand, you might say that there's a new regional solidarity about the need to deal with this problem. Kenya and Ethiopia and Uganda are all members of EGAD. There's clearly been consultation between them. The first person to arrive in Nairobi the day after the invasion was Museveni. When Kibaki made his statement about Kenya's intentions, Museveni was standing next to him on the platform. The Kenyan army has been liaising directly with the Ethiopian army for the first time. Uh, and they are consulting on what they're doing in the invasions at the moment. There are back-channel talks taking place every day, dealing with these third forces between all the sides involved. So on one level, you can present this as a regional initiative. EGAD is the, the, the East African Regional Group is at last taking charge of its own security. But on the other hand, they're not necessarily agreed as to what the outcome should be. There's the Kenyan High Command, very serious looking bunch. And there's not such a serious looking guy, Manny Chichir. I just put this in for a little light relief. Um, Manny Chichir is this guy here, who's a fast up and coming Kenyan officer. And in the early stage of the, of the invasion, he was the chief spokesperson who went onto the media. Now Manny is a, it's been a steep learning curve for Manny. Um, in the first few days, he tweeted the names of the 10 towns Kenya was about to invade. <laughs> Probably not a good idea, Manny. But it just emphasized the problem. That then caused mass flight from those 10 towns and contributed to the refugee problem with another few hundred people 
fleeing across the border. It just illustrates, it's a light-hearted illustration, but it shows the fragility of the situation. And there are our American colleagues training the Kenyan Third Forces I was talking about. And that training has been going on, as I say, for the last two years. Now that raises the question of how far the West has been complicit in this invasion. Did we know it was going to happen? Did America and the EU and Britain support it? Well, the Americans very vociferously claim that they opposed it, which kind of implies they knew it was coming, doesn't it? Um, but I think that's probably right. And I think the British Foreign Office are right when they say that they opposed it also, because both those governments have been supporting this third force campaign, which they argued had not had long enough to gestate and develop. So the argument that both the British and the Americans put forward in October was that the Kenyans had jumped the gun. They'd gone in much earlier than anyone wanted them to, and the Americans and Brits weren't sure this was the right time to do it. I think that's probably right. But at the same time, the Kenyans were saying, well, you can't let us fail, can you? In other words, the Kenyans kind of knew that if they go in, the West is going to have to come in behind them in some way and solve this problem. And the Kenyans are banking on that. Now, that also raises the point that from the from the very first days of the invasion, the Kenyan military, Mani Chichir again, began talking about rehatting the Kenyan troops as Amazon. In other words, making them peacekeepers once they get to Kismayo. Now, the problem with that is that under, under um, UN mandates, neighboring countries are not normally allowed to join peacekeeping groups for obvious reasons. They have too much vested interest in what's going on. So you try and use troops from more distant areas to make the management of the situation easier. But the AU has decided to overrule this and is permitting Djiboutian and Kenyan troops to be rehatted in this conflict. Now that is not going to make the politics of handling the various factions in southern Somalia any easier. Because the Kenyans are seen to have interests in that area and to support certain factions within Kismayo. So if the Kenyans do manage to take Kismayo, and I suppose eventually they will, who knows when, how are they going to administer it and control it? One assumes they'll be rehatted as Amazon. And by the way, when you get rehatted, someone else pays. I don't know if that's a motivation or not. Make up your own mind. So someone else will be paying for them to be there, but they'll be running the city. Now, I hope that means that Chismail will become a peaceful place and that all the illegal and the illegitimate trade that's going on there will be stopped. I suspect it might not be quite that simple and that the Kenyan army might find real difficulties even as an Amazon group in controlling Kismayo. The Americans and the Brits have been very supportive of the new initiative that was announced today. And part of the reason for that support is the piracy problem. And here's the Kenyan Navy with a rubber boat. The Kenyan Navy, like other navies in this area, doesn't really have the capacity to deal with the pirate problem. It needs an international dimension. And there is a large NATO force on the shores of Somalia at the moment trying to deal with the pirate problem. But piracy isn't really linked to the Al-Shabaab problem in any way. 
they're two quite different issues. And despite David Cameron's bold and almost you know, breathtakingly um, kind of arrogant attempts to link them together in the speech he was making today, they just don't fit together very well. So it's not clear, entirely clear certainly, whether the West and its interest in this is driven by the parity problem or is it really driven by the Al-Shabaab problem of fundamentalist Islam. I think it's much more the latter and that the parity issue has become a kind of a distraction that's irritating and annoying and needs dealing with but isn't any longer the real issue. The real issue is the danger of Al-Shabaab becoming a haven for fundamentalism and anti-Western activity following the withdrawal from Afghanistan. And it's interesting the British government first began discussing the possibility of the initiative announced today over a year ago. And it was being discussed in the context of the exit strategy from Afghanistan. It's also been discussed in the context that both Yemen and Somalia have been seen as the next safe havens for so-called terrorists. And that the growth of cells supported by Al-Shabaab, but supported by Al-Qaeda rather, in both countries has become an increasingly predominant focus of British, European and American concern. And I was very interested this morning that among the spokespersons the British government put up to talk about this, there was a great deal of emphasis given to the estimates of how many Brits have been recruited by Al-Shabaab. Some of you may have heard this this morning. They're talking about as many, the, the phrase they use is perhaps as many as 50 Brits have been recruited to Al-Shabaab. I've never seen any sources that suggest it's more than about a dozen, so I don't know how it got multiplied to 50 today, but it isn't very many. But there is a concern that just as Yemen became a haven for this kind of coagulation of dissident forces, that southern Somalia was becoming the same. And there's a determination not to allow that to happen and to bring this to an end. How long? I've just about run out of time, have I? No, you've got 10 minutes. 10 minutes, okay. That allows me to finish off on, on today's event a bit more. Okay, so so that's the background. So, so let me then say where I think we're going, where we've got to. We've got the Kenyan army in there, we've got the Ethiopian army in there, we've got Al-Shabaab still armed to the teeth and determined to fight it out. And by the way, you know, don't believe some of the stuff that you read about Al-Shabaab being a ragbag army that don't know what they're doing. Nothing could be further from the truth. These guys are very capable of making this a very, very long and costly fight. And that is what they will do. And around places like Jalib, they've got trenches, they've got tunnels, they've got encampments, they've got defences built in. These guys are not going to run away. And if they do apparently run away, it'll be simply to hunker down somewhere else. So this problem is going to continue. So what have we had today with this new initiative? What are they trying to announce? Uh, did any of you receive the leaked briefing that was going around on Friday? I mean, I think the whole world got it, actually. Someone who was involved in the process leaked a draft of David Cameron's speech. Those of us like me who were invited to the NGO forum that met on Tuesday to discuss uh, the recommendations we would make to the committee that met today would have been alarmed to find that our recommendations were already written in the Friday report. So someone had already tried to predict what we might recommend. So there's a sense in which this, this has all been rather set up. 
And to some extent, the British government's been very concerned only to have people involved in this process who are in favor of the process. So people who might be critical or cynical have not been consulted to quite the same extent. Now, that's fair enough because they're trying to achieve a political goal, but what is that goal? Now, if you read the communique, it's actually almost impossible to work out what it means. There's all kinds of statements about we recommend this, we recommend that, but politically it's difficult to imagine what this adds up to. However, some of the appendices that go with the communique that have not been released do give stronger clues as to what might be happening. And I want now to conclude by interpreting that for you and giving you my best guess at what I think this means. Essentially, <clears throat> no one in the Eastern African region wants there to be more than one Somalia. This is partly driven by strong local political self-interest. Melizanawi, Kolkagame, Yuri Museveni, none of them are keen on having more than one Muslim state in Igad. One to them is enough. For Museveni, one is probably more than enough. So they're not, they have not recognized Somaliland, they have not recognized Puntland. Now if you're wondering why the international community hasn't recognized Somaliland, that's the answer. The international community is not going to recognize Somaliland until the regional organization does. And they're never going to do it. So the only way to see Somaliland's um, efforts in building a state from nothing being rewarded would be for the West to split from the regional organization. And it's not going to happen. So what we've at last come up with, the West have realized, is that we need some kind of scheme that reconstitutes a single Somalia. So how do we do that? Now the last 20 international conferences on Somalia, yes there have been 20, one for each year since the state failed, have all tried to impose top-down solutions to this. They've tried to put a government into Mogadishu, they've tried to suggest roadmaps for building a constitution, and for coming up with a solution that can be worked in terms of statehood. So they've tried to empower certain politicians to give this leadership from Mogadishu. In the process of that, literally millions of dollars have been poured into Somalia. Most of them going to pay the participants in these processes. And that in itself has become part of the problem. People in Somalia come to the negotiating table in order to get the money divvied up. And if you don't pay enough, certain people won't be there. So there's a financial issue to this that's really quite interesting. Now, what has been decided in this, on this occasion is instead of going for a top-down approach, they're going to try to allow Somalia to reconstitute itself from the bottom up. Organically, but not really organically. It's going to be more like genetic modification rather than organic farming, I think. Because what is intended is to allow local units that want to form local governments in any of these parts. And perhaps I can go back to our map to make this point. So, in, so for example, in this south and central region, you might have several different political units forming. Up in the north here you have Somaliland and Puntland. 
you then have the area around Mogadishu. Well, you might get a different political formulation coming up in Beledouane, in Hiran. You might get another one in Baidoa, around Bay. You'll certainly get one around Luk, and you might get one or two in Juba. So that would leave us with five or six new little Somalias emerging, claiming political sovereignty over those specific areas, almost like provinces, you might say. That is what this new initiative means. That the international community is going to try and cultivate these smaller units to emerge organically by liaising and collaborating with local politicians. Now there's no template for doing this, there's no great plan of how it should be done. The, the idea is rather it should be done opportunistically, as people emerge, as critical mass emerges, you create the, the, the opportunity for it to happen and you then facilitate it. So there might be several different pathways towards doing this. Now what that implies is that you're going to end up with five or six different provinces, each of which has a very different kind of politics, a very different political formulation. Now the plus side of that, as Cameron's spokespersons have been saying all day long, is that that means that Somalis define what it looks like. Now if it works at its best, I suppose that's right. But it's a funny kind of participation. Because many of these areas are run by guys with guns. And it doesn't really address, to my mind, the real critical problem, how you deal with the issue of coercion. How you get free, free and fair participation when you've still got such a heavily militarized problem. But this organic idea, at least it's a different way of thinking about it. But then let's just think what that would mean. So let's imagine that over the next five years, and it will take that long for sure, that these different political groups begin to emerge. Where does that then leave Puntland and Somaliland? Do the Somalilanders have to come to the same table alongside warlords from Baidoa, jumped up French anthropologists from Lower, Lower Juba, and various other assorted people who've not been much to do with the political protest process in the last 10 years? Are, are Somalilanders really expected to sacrifice all they've gained and to compromise it at a negotiating table with these people? Well, yes, they are. Because they're not going to be recognized otherwise. And similarly, Puntland, the Puntland government will have to decide how they will respond to this. The idea would be that once all these political groups have formed, they then get together and discuss how they can draw up a centralized constitution that will bring about a government in Mogadishu to which they can be federated. And then I think you'd end up with some kind of federal structure with a, a national government, a sovereign government in Mogadishu, provinces that were affiliated in a federal system. Now, no one yet, I think, has thought how, what that might look like, how that might work, but that's the broad architecture. Now, one of the key issues here for the Ethiopians and the Kenyans is that they will have some influence over these areas, but also that at the end of the day, there'll only be one Somali national army, not seven. And that may yet prove to be the sticking point. Because how you turn all these militias into one national army again. I wouldn't like to be the guy trying to do that. And on the political side, I think there may be other, other similarly intractable problems. Now, all along, they will say, well, if the Somalilanders don't like this, they can opt out. But if you're a Somalilander, what does that mean? 
You opt out of what and into what. No one recognizes you. You're not a state. How do you deal with that? So I think really, as, as this process goes on the next weeks, we'll see the Somalilanders and the people who get really irritated and frustrated by this. Because for them, this looks like a backward step. For them, it looks like a sacrificing of what they've gained. And that may end up being the real, the real problem in this. The other problem will be, as comment from Mogadishu this morning has already been making clear, is that Somali politicians are very wily and experienced. You know, they've been through 20 of these international conferences before, and they're deeply cynical. They don't really think this is going to work, and they don't think that it's likely to be successful anytime soon. So while they're all happy to say, well, we welcome this initiative, it offers us some hope, they're actually not that soon. And without their active participation and positive role, it isn't going to work anyway. So the key element will be if Somali politicians mobilize themselves to operationalize this, then it might get some traction and it might actually succeed. But without that, it's unlikely to go anywhere. So then you ask, lastly, if that's the case, why is David Cameron taking such a risk? If it's going to be so difficult to motivate this and to make it happen, why has Cameron put his head into the lion's mouth? Well, I think they, they genuinely believe that by funding this process strategically, they can mobilize and galvanize that support. So by using the aid and donor money to the right people at the right time, you can entice people to participate. You can give them resources, you can give them access, you can give them a degree of power and recognition. And by doing that, you build the strength that will lead to some degree of political autonomy. So I think that is the plan. Thank you.